Father, we are thankful for the promise that your mercy and goodness will follow us all the days of our life. Father, that it will pursue us and never fail to find us until you come back for your people. We pray this morning, Lord, that you would fill our minds and hearts with your spirit, that we might be able to hear your voice through your word this morning. We pray that we would continue to worship you as we exercise faith in you and trust and confidence, not in any preacher, but in the word that is preached. We pray that you would hear our prayer in Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. If you have your Bible, turn with me to Luke chapter 15 this morning. Luke chapter 15. If you have the app open and the sermon notes out, I'm grateful for that, but save those for next week. Uh, that won't be uh, the passage that we're looking at there. We're looking at Luke 15 today. And uh, as we begin... We want to set the stage by just uh, reading the first few verses of this chapter and thinking about how they prepare us for what Jesus is going to teach the crowd that's gathered before Him. Uh, So please join me in standing for the reading of God's Word and follow along as I begin reading Luke chapter 15 beginning at verse 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, that is to Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Here from the outset, we're told of who Jesus is and why he has come. Gathered around Jesus were tax collectors and sinners. Now, it's not as if... The Bible teaches that, or that Luke is trying to convey that somehow there are people who are not sinners. No, that's not the case. Instead, there are people who had a reputation for their sin. They were well known as sinners. And one of those groups combined together here were the tax collectors. These were men who, it was thought, betrayed their fellow Jews by working for the Romans to collect taxes. And they not only collected the taxes for Rome that was owed to them, but they got to to collect basically anything above and beyond that as their living wage. And unfortunately, many we know took exorbitant amounts of money extra, bilking their own people. And so Israel saw them as kind of the the Benedict Arnolds of Israel. And yet, it was these tax collectors and sinners that were the people that flocked to Jesus. And He was glad to receive them even when He was criticized for it. Just as there were some people in Jesus' day that, was, that were known for their sin, there were also people that were known for their righteousness, people that had a reputation of godliness, namely the Pharisees and the scribes that were told about in these verses. Everyone outwardly saw their meticulous efforts at keeping God's law. Not only did they strive for righteousness, but they maintained to, uh, as much as possible, stay away from sin. And so if they saw these tax collectors, if they saw these known sinners uh, coming down the street, they would often cross the other side so as to not be near them. They would very often avert their eyes and not even acknowledge that they were there on the street, lest somehow they would become contaminated by this other person's sin. And so known for righteousness and holiness, what we see is that actually most of these people had a reputation that was ultimately hollow. 
Because their righteousness did not come by faith and repentance in the living God. It was rather an assumed righteousness, a fake righteousness that came from ignoring their own sin. So here is Jesus welcoming sinners. Here are those that have a reputation of righteousness, critiquing him for that. And Luke tells us that in that context, Jesus told them a parable. And we've, we've talked about parables before. Remember that these things are not just cute stories. They're not the Christian version of Aesop's fables. And I've said before that I appreciate Al Mohler's definition. He says, parables are like spiritual hand grenades. Jesus sets up the audience through the story, and then by the end, the pen is pulled. The explanation is obvious, either by the context or by Jesus explaining what he means, and the results are explosive. People are often offended by Jesus' teaching. They get angry. Why? Because Jesus' teaching, his parables, defy expectations and reveal sinful ways of those who are listening to him. Notice also that Luke doesn't say that Jesus told them three parables. He says he told them this parable. And the way that the parable is framed, or these three stories, these three scenes are framed, I think that we should understand Luke is telling us Jesus meant this to be one big parable just with three different levels. So we we can't just isolate one of them. We must take them all together. And what we'll see as we go through is a repeated cycle. Something is lost. Something is found, and there is great rejoicing because of it. Why should we be concerned with this parable, this chapter today? Why should we want to listen to what Jesus has to say in Luke 15? Well, two reasons. First of all, it's important for us because this is a means by which Jesus is defending his ministry before the Pharisees and the scribes in this moment. That they've grumbled that he is receiving tax collectors and sinners, that he's eating with them, that he's being with them. And he's saying, this is why I've come to do that. Secondly, it's important because this parable offers an invitation, not just to those that were there in in Jesus' day, but an ongoing invitation to all who will hear it and understand it and receive it. We understand that those as God's people need to respond to this. The parable offers the invitation to the lost that need to be found. And we need to ask ourselves this morning, are, are we lost? Is Jesus seeking to find us? And if we have been found as God's people, will we end up like the Pharisees grumbling here at the beginning or will we end up like those in the parable rejoicing about the business that Jesus is about, about the mission that He had and that He extends to us? Will we be like the Pharisees wanting to avoid sinners or will we join Jesus in His work of seeking them out? Well, as we walk through this parable, the first thing we need to understand is the caring shepherd. The caring shepherd. Look at verse 4. Jesus says, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Shepherding was, of course, a common practice in 
the agrarian society of Israel, but the imagery of shepherding also had spiritual importance. When you read through the Old Testament, you see that spiritual leaders were called the shepherds of Israel, even God himself. The Lord is my shepherd, David would write in Psalm 23. And so the picture that Jesus gives here comes in that context, and it begins with this lost sheep. Now, for all of their cuteness, sheep are pretty helpless creatures. To begin with, they're stupid. I say, well, that's not a very nice thing to say. That's probably true, uh, but they are stupid. Science has apparently proved this. You can go online, you can read about studies that scientists have done that characterize the intelligence of animals according to brain weight and a body size ratio. And sheep are found at the bottom of this list. And that presumed lack of intelligence is seen in their behavior. They cannot find food or water on their own. They must be led to it or else they will starve. When a predator attacks, they don't run away like other animals. They just run around in circles in the field. And and just think about how they're made. They have no physical defense. They don't have any kind of sharp teeth to, to, to bite at something. They don't have claws. They cannot emit an odor like skunks that we're all familiar with around here. They have nothing. They have no defense whatsoever. And so they are particularly vulnerable and needy. Do, do not miss out on the fact that God repeatedly calls his people sheep. The shepherd, of course, knows all this. And that is why he goes after that sheep once it has gotten lost, when he finds it. Notice he doesn't beat it and chastise it for getting lost. He doesn't even make it walk home. He bears it up on his shoulders and cares for the sheep after its ordeal. And and when he arrives at his home, he calls all of his friends together to rejoice with him. And Now, as Jesus is telling this, the audience probably at this point is saying, like, nobody does that. Nobody gets their friends and rejoices over a, a sheep that was lost. But Jesus shows it's not just about physical sheep, right? It's about people. People are like sheep. Jesus explains that the same way the shepherd is overjoyed when he finds the lost sheep, so there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who have no need of repentance. That there are those that stand back and think, I am a child of God, and they're not. And they're not because their righteousness is fake. It's hollow. It does not come from faith in God. And so there is great rejoicing when one lost sheep, one sheep that knows it's lost, that feels the terror of being away from the safety of the shepherd, is found by the shepherd and brought safely home. Here here are these so-called righteous people in Israel listening to this parable, and they cannot even think about looking at a sinner, let alone going after them. Jesus says, heaven itself takes notice when they are saved. Jesus says that he came caring for lost sheep who desperately need God. But more than that, he searches out for those that are lost. And this is driven home in the second part of the parable. Here we see the searching woman, the searching woman. Jesus continues in verse 8, he says, or what woman? Having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it. And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, rejoicing, saying, uh, her neighbors saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I lost. Just so I tell you, 
There is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Now, if you're like me, you've probably lost something in your house at some point. These days, it's most likely a phone, a cell phone, or a remote to the TiVo, or uh, not the TiVo, boy, what, what age am I living in? The Roku, sorry. Um, that's what happens when you're 44. One time, though, just a few months ago, I lost my wallet. And uh, I was actually out driving and went to stop to get something, and I realized, hey, I, I, don't, I don't have my wallet. So I finished what I was doing, came home, and it was not where I normally would have it. So I went to where I thought, well, maybe I put it down here some, for some reason. And I put it down here, I realized I have no idea where this wallet is. And, and terror struck my heart because about a year ago, I was the victim of identity theft. And I thought, it, it's happening all over again. So every light on the house was on, cush, uh, couch cushions are flying, I'm under beds and, and everywhere desperately searching for this wallet, and thankfully, I found that wallet. And I literally, in that moment, stopped, got on my knees, and thanked God that he allowed me to find that wallet. It wasn't much different for this lady in this coin. As with the shepherd, there's no information about this woman. We don't know if she's young or she's old, she's married or widow. We don't know why this coin is so valuable to her. We don't know what it represents, and none of that's important. Don't try and over-psychologize or read too much detail into Jesus' parables. That's not what they're there for. Nevertheless, what we need to understand is the desperation that she displays in trying to find this lost coin. She goes all through the house, sweeping every nook and cranny, we're told. She lights a lamp and casts it into every room, driving out the shadows so that she can see clearly what is going on. She sweeps through dust, and then eventually she finds this lost coin, and she rejoices. Such is her joy that, like the shepherd, she goes and she gathers her friends that they may rejoice with her that she has found this lost coin. And here again is a picture of Jesus himself who diligently seeks out the lost and gives us a reminder of the rejoicing that takes place when they're found. Verse 10, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. It asks me to explain how theologically there can be joy and and, and added rejoicing in a context where you are in the presence of God, and so the fullness of, of worship and rejoicing and joy is already there. I don't know. All I know is what Jesus says. Heaven takes notice and the angels rejoice. Somehow there is more joy in heaven when a sinner repents. Jesus has told us about this caring shepherd and the searching woman, and now he gives us a more involved, more detailed final part of the parable. And this story is, is well known. Uh, we often call this part in our Bibles the parable of the lost son or the prodigal son. But I, but I think those titles have the emphasis in the wrong place. In the other parts, and even in this part, the point is not about, is not about the thing that is lost. It's about the person who goes looking for the thing that is lost. So it is right that in other languages... In those Bibles, this part of the parable is called the parable of the waiting father. Or in one African translation, the parable of the joyous father. Perhaps best of all for many German editions, which labels this parable the gracious father. The gracious father. And so that's what we want to see in this final part of Jesus' parable. We want to see the gracious father. Look at verse 11. Jesus says, there was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. 
and that he divided his property between them. Now, inheritance law in Judaism said that the first son would receive double whatever the other sons received. And you understand why that was the case. That was so that uh, the children did not they were not either tempted to or felt the need to break up the homestead, their allotment of inheritance that God had deemed for their family, began selling it off. The property was meant to stay with that family. Of course, normally, the inheritance would be received by the children after the father passed away. For, for again, reasons that were not exactly told, the younger of the two sons feels contempt for the father. Well, you say, that's not explicit. How will we know that? Well, it, 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 we, we, we could at least in, imply contempt because in this time to say that I want my inheritance early is to essentially say, gosh, Dad, you're living too long. I really wish you were dead. It's shamefully disrespectful towards the Father. One scholar knows that if at this point in the story, Jesus said the Father had the Son beaten and thrown out of the house, no one would have blinked an eye. But that's not what happens. The father gives the younger son what he wants. And Jesus says in verse 13, not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his field to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. And no one gave him anything. Rather than a new life, rather than making his way in the world and establishing a name for himself, the son squanders his inheritance. This is where we get that title prodigal son from. Prodigal is the Latin word for wasteful. And that's certainly what he is. He's wasteful with the resources that his father have has given to him. And notice that... He, He's not only been wasteful with those resources, but now he's in a country that experiences a famine. So, so here's this young man. He's far from home. We're told he's gone to a far country. He has no money, and now food is scarce. So what does he do? He has to go get a job, and he gets a job feeding pigs. But the pay is so terrible that the food that the pigs are eating looks better than the meager crumbs of whatever he was given to eat. It's a bad place to be, but it gets even worse when we remember what is the context in which Jesus is giving this parable. I, I mean, I don't want to, I don't want to slot pigs for a living. But this is a Jewish kid, and 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 he's not he's already forsaken the promised land. He's off in this far country, and now he's having to to work with an animal God has said is unclean. What worst of all, the epitome of unclean animals. The the Jews called their enemies pigs. And this kid is not only feeding, serving the pigs, but the food they're eating looks better than whatever slop he's being given to eat. It is the worst possible scenario that Jesus has set up for these kids. It would have been shocking to the Pharisees and the scribes. I mean, you would just be able, if you were there, to see them just going, my goodness gracious, how terrible, how terrible. Some may have even been thinking, this kid got what he deserved for being so disrespectful to the Father. But remember, the, 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 the Pharisees and the scribes aren't the only people there. There's also the sinners and the tax collectors. 
And as Jesus is describing this descent of this sinful young man, maybe they could be nodding their heads for different reasons, nodding and understanding because that's been their experience as well. But what Jesus describes here is not just kind of a, an abstract story, but it's very much how we might describe the common pattern of sin in everyone's life if we have the eyes to see it. Sin is deceitful. Sin is seductive even. And the fruit that it promises always turns out to be rotten and sour. More than once we begin to excuse and rationalize our small sins and suddenly we find that big sins come easier and easier. Eventually we find ourselves in the pig slop of life looking around at the chaos and the mess that we've made and we wonder, how did I ever get here? How did I ever get here? But notice what happens to this young man in verse 17. Jesus says, in the midst of this misery, he came to himself and he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But the son has this moment of clarity. He, he comes to a point where he realizes, I've done this to myself. It is, it is my own sin that has put me here. And yet, there is the, the hope of something better beyond this. I, I can go back to my father and I can repent. I'm not just the victim of circumstance. I made the decisions that got me here. But, but I can repent before my father. And, and he says, I, I don't even want to be a son anymore. Just, just, just let me go out and live with the hired hands. Because that will be more than enough than what I have right now. And in the midst of his sorrow, he remembers the, the generosity of the Father. He said, even my Father's servants have more bread than they know what to do with. They're not given that minimum wage. They're giving a great wage. They're well taken care of. And you think, how good did he have it as the son? If he's saying, even the servants have it amazing in my father's house. And so th this is his plan. God, God, fa Father, I have sinned against heaven. I've sinned against you. Please forgive me. And, and I don't even want to be a son. Just, just let me be a servant in your household. So he gets up from the pig pen and he begins a long walk home. And Jesus picks the story up in verse 20. While the young son was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion, and ran, and embraced him, and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to the servants, bring quickly the best robe, and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand, and shoes on his feet, and bring the fatted calf, and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Again, we try to put ourselves in that moment, in that crowd, listening to Jesus. And once again, the scribes and the Pharisees would have been astonished at the Father's response. They never would have even looked the Son in the eyes, let alone spent time gazing out in the fields, hoping that He would return and be restored. 
More than that, they never would have run. It would have been scandalous for a man that age to run in the culture of the day. And notice the restoration that the father has. The son confesses his sin, but before he even is able to get out this whole bit about just, just make me a servant, the father interrupts him against yelling directions. Bring out the best robe and, and put it on him. Get rid of those dirty old tattered clothes. Put a robe on him. And, and here's my son whose feet are naked and weary from this long walk. Put shoes on him and put the ring on him. The family crest, the sign of sonship back on his hand. The father is not interested in anything less than the full reclamation of his wayward son. Like the shepherd and the woman, he is ready to share his joy with others. He says, bring the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. We are going to party tonight. Why? Because my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and now he's found. And Jesus says they all began to celebrate. It's an amazing, prodigal, wasteful display of grace from the Father in the eyes of the Pharisees and the scribes. Jesus knows that. And so now he picks up on the detail that he started this portion of the parable with. Here is a father with two sons. We saw what happened to the younger son. What about the older son? Verse 25. Jesus says, Now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours comes, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you, feel the cat, you kill the fatted calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Now, Muller is helpful again as he points out that grace is very offensive to those who do not think they need it. And that, and that is the attitude of the older son. We can rightly rejoice in the return of the younger son, but it should grieve us when we hear the response of the older son. He's a son, but he doesn't realize it. He doesn't realize that he's more lost than the younger son ever was. He hears the party and is disgusted to think that the father has done all this for his wayward brother. In fact, he can't, even, he can't even notice, he can't bring himself to even call him brother. He looks at the father and says, this son of yours, he's wasted all your money in this wickedness and now you want to throw him a party and congratulate him for it. But the grace of the father is not completely spent on the younger son. There is plenty of grace for the older son as well. He entreats him. He says, come on, come with me. Let's, let's join the party. Let's celebrate the return of your brother. He was dead to us and now he's alive. He was lost to us, but now he's been found. And yet the older son has been so consumed with serving and obeying and yet there's no joy in the salvation of his brother. If he was truly the father's son, then he would have loved his brother just like the father did. 
And he would have been rejoicing and crying and dancing at that party like everyone else. And so, so here is the sad twist to the story. Though one son saw his sin and believed that he was only worthy to be a slave, the other son never saw his th- sin, thought he was a son when really he was just a slave. He never truly lived as a son, but was always working for the father, we're told. The older son thinks he's serving the father, but he's really just serving himself. He thinks that he is achieving, earning the inheritance that will one day come to him when the father passes away. And it's here that Jesus has pulled that pin and the grenade goes off. For Jesus is looking into the eyes of many older brothers. And he looks at the Pharisees and the scribes and he's challenging them to see, not not the sin in everybody else around them, but to see the sin in their own hearts, to see the sin in their own lives. That They say, we're sons of Abraham, but really they're just slaves. They're not living as sons because they don't have faith in God for righteousness. They are seeking to work it for themselves. He's challenging them to see their sin, to understand their hearts have become hardened. And so to be able to rejoice when sinners and tax collectors find forgiveness and life with God. To see their own need now of the gracious Father who will forgive them. To understand that no one is saved by religious activity, but by faith in God alone. And this is how the parable ends. It's with an open invitation of grace and forgiveness from a true older brother, that is Jesus. Many, many commentators point out that in Jesus we find the, the, what the older brother should have been. He is the one who goes out and he searches for sinners and he rejoices when they're found. That's what the Pharisees and the scribes should have been doing. If you're really the spiritual leaders in Israel that you think you are, why are you not concerned for sinners who don't know God? How are you not seeking to glorify Him by proclaiming to sinners that they can turn and find life and forgiveness that many would give God the praise that He deserves? That's what the true people of God do. That's what the true spiritual leaders of Israel should be doing. And yet only Jesus is doing it. So all of these scribes and Pharisees are are. are Older brothers is in the parable when they should have been like the true older brother that is in Jesus. Rather than take pride in their own works, they they should have cried out to God for His mercy to save them and then earnestly taught others to do the same. Rather than be angry over sinners coming to God, they should have rejoiced in that. And Jesus is asking them, like the Father, "Won't, won't you come and rejoice Won't you come and join in the celebration? Won't you come and join in the work of seeking the lost and rejoicing when they are found? That's the parable of Luke 15. So let's take a few minutes now. Let's think, how how should we respond to this parable? We've heard it. I hope we've understood it. What difference should it make in our life? And so, so as we conclude, we want to consider three responses. Three responses. First, Look at your own heart. Look at your own heart. Jesus' invitation didn't end with those standing with him on that day. It's still open today. Jesus is still caring and searching for sinners to whom he can show his amazing grace. He came out of the love of the Father. And in his own love, he died for sinners that they might have life with God. That's the reason why Jesus can be our Savior. It's the reason why we can be forgiven. 
It's that Jesus took the penalty for us on the cross. He stood in our place. God judged him, not because of sins that he did, but because of sins that we have done. He was our substitute before God. More than that, though, as God raised him from the dead, bringing him back to life, he has established him as the Lord of all things. He is our now great intercessor before the Father. So that Jesus' ministry was not just kind of a a one and done. It was an amazing event on the cross. And then in his resurrection, the effects of that work continue on to all eternity. So today, today, look at your heart. Be honest with yourself and determine who you are before God. Do, Do you believe that you are without sin? Do you think that God will accept you? Because your righteous deeds, your good works, your community service, your tipping well at restaurants will somehow outbalance all of the the negative things that you've done, all of the unkind words and the hateful thoughts, the lustful thoughts that you've committed. Then you're lost. You're lost and you need to be found. But if you've seen your sin and you've cried out to God for mercy... You've asked him to apply the saving remedy of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection to your own life, then you have been found. And there has been great rejoicing in heaven because of it, because you are forgiven and part of Christ's people. Today, if you are lost, look to Jesus and be found. Do not allow pride to get in the way. Do not believe that somehow you're too bad, that somehow God's love cannot overwhelmingly wash away your sins through Christ. Look to Him and be saved. If you have been found, if you are one of Jesus' disciples, if you belong to God, then second, seek the lost. Seek the lost. Edmund Clowney tells the story of a man named Daniel Dawson. He was a young man who served in the Vietnam War, and just after one battle, his plane was shot down and he was classified as missing in action. The family was grieved about this, and they kept asking for updates and for updates, wanting to know if he'd ever been found, if, if people were out searching for him, if, if they had even found a body to know that he was no longer alive and had been killed in action. But they never heard anything. Unsatisfied with this, because their father had just passed away the year before, the, the, the man's older brother, Donald, flew to Vietnam to look for himself. Understand, this is not peacetime. The war is still going on. This is the 60s. But nothing would deter him. Sometimes he searched the, 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 the jungles alone. Sometimes he went with, with U.S. forces. Sometimes he just marched deep into enemy territory, desperately searching for his brother. In the end, it turned out that the brother had indeed perished in that first plane crash. For him, the searching was all for nothing, but that's not the case with us, loved ones. How much more ought we ought to be diligently, relentlessly searching when Jesus has promised he will call his people to himself. Through the gospel, Jesus' sheep will hear his voice and they will no longer be lost, but they will be found through faith in him. So, so very often we expect lost people to come to us. We, we say, well, God, just put them in our path, put them in our path. And listen, that's a great prayer. That's a, that, that's a great prayer. What I'm just saying is that shouldn't be our only prayer. That shouldn't be our only strategy. 
well, when lost people come to me, I'll be ready. How, how about we imitate Jesus, our Savior, and we go looking for lost people? We go seeking those sheep. We go looking after those lost coins. We look after those younger sons who have found themselves squandering away their lives, perhaps close to death. But we have a message of salvation and love for them. Like a shepherd worried about a lost sheep, like a woman diligently seeking her lost coin, like a loving father scanning the horizon. So Jesus went out seeking and saving the lost, and he has given that mission to us, and we should do the same. But let's take it one step further. More than just an intention, more than just a motivation, what is your game plan? What is your strategy for seeking out the lost? Because it's easy here to, 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 to nod and say, okay, that's good, that's right, I, I see that, but how, where is the meat on the bones of this thing? This week and in the weeks to come, how are you going to think about the people that God has already just put in the order of your lives and you're not just passively waiting for them to bring something up, but you are going to be actively seeking to invest in their lives, actively seeking to bring the gospel to bear, actively seeking to show uh, acts of love and kindness that they might see the gospel actually transforms lives. How diligently will you pursue the lost? Finally, Finally, as we consider this parable, we should rejoice with God. We should rejoice with God. The church has a, a near endless supply of reasons in which to rejoice. But here should be the greatest cause of our rejoicing, the salvation of sinners. The lost that is found and made whole in Christ. Jesus says the angels in heaven itself stops and takes notice when someone comes to themselves by the work of the Spirit and sees their need and puts their faith in Jesus and passes from death to life, from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of God's beloved Son. And so it is the evidence of a true gospel church that we also rejoice in sinners saved. I know it's very easy for us to get comfortable. It's very easy for us to think about our ministry to one another. And, and there is a lot of ministry to be done amongst ourselves, encouraging us, spurring, spurring us on in our faith, helping us to fix our eyes on Jesus. But that's not all we're here for. That's not all we're here for. We're also to be seeking the lost and excited when they come to faith in Christ. May we not only repent and rejoice that we have found Jesus but helping others do the same. This morning, as we have considered Jesus' parable in Luke 15, I want to give the last word to J.C. Ryle. Here's what he says in his commentary. Let the man who is afraid to repent consider well the verses we are now looking at and be afraid no more. There is nothing on God's part to justify your fears. An open door is set before you. A free pardon awaits you. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Have we repented ourselves? This, after all, is the principal question which concerns us. And what shall it profit us to know God's love if we do not use it? If you know these things, happy are you if you do them. Let's pray.
Father, how blessed are we to know your grace. How blessed are we to be the recipients of Christ's love for sinners. How blessed and privileged are we to be a part of Jesus' mission to seek and to save the lost. Father, Christ has already done all that is necessary for their salvation. We merely need to seek them out to share the news of that salvation won by Christ and to call them to faith and repentance before you. Father, too often we see this as a burden to bear. We see this as drudgery. We see this as difficult and complicated and inconvenient and messy in our lives. But Jesus didn't see it that way. Jesus saw it as the means of great joy, both in his life and in the life of heaven itself. And so, Father, we pray that this parable would help us to reframe our thinking about what it means to seek out the lost that they might be found and together we might take joy in the salvation that God provides. If there's someone here that needs salvation, then Father, I pray that you would help them to see your love and your grace through this parable in the life of Jesus and how he was welcoming of sinners. That they would heed well J.C. Ryle's words that there is nothing to be afraid of to prevent someone from repenting. God is ready and willing to accept. I pray, Father, that as we meditate on these things in the days to come, that Jesus himself, his character on display in this parable, even in how he treats those to whom he is speaking the parable, those that would criticize him and reject him, Father, that love and grace and compassion and commitment to sinners, Father, that that would cause us to treasure him all the more. We pray these things in his name. Amen.